She's just she's so childlike that yeah, it's, get a fucking job. Yeah, like go. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? Let's put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me. Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. Uh, I have a voice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week, in preparation for the new big release, which is, of course, Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins, we are taking a look at one of her older movies called Monster. And what we're really looking at is rehabilitation, like specifically people who have broken the law in the past and are trying to create a better new life. And how difficult that is and how that can affect a person. And to do that, I have a return guest. I have Becky Belzil from Audiences Everywhere. So thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. So before we get started on this, why don't you tell people like maybe, you know, something recently you've written that you're really happy with and where they can find you online? Oh, um, I guess recently I watched the Australian crime thriller Hounds of Love, which I loved. And if I love something, I'm going to write better about it. That's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, so you can just find that on audienceseverywhere.net. Okay, nice. All right, so uh, before I jump into the psychology and all that, all the fun part of the show, um, why don't you give people a couple movie recommendations? Sure. So I know you just watched this recently, but um, upon rewatching Monster, I immediately thought of Ms. 45. Did you like that, by the way? Wait, what was the movie? Ms. 45. I don't think I have watched that. I thought you did. Nope. It's the one about the nun who uh, gets raped and then she just goes out and kills everybody. Nope. That sounds amazing, though. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> Maybe I was reading someone else's tweets. That's totally understandable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Ms. So 45? I, yeah, uh, it's an older movie. It's a little bit uh, B-movie, but it's a lot of fun. And it's a different uh, point of view than this one, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. Nice. I will definitely yeah. check that out. And then the other one I thought of is based on Charlie's physical transformation. I was thinking mm. about um, The Machinist. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about transformations. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that, that one is up. haunting. Yes. Yes. All right. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. So two movies I actually haven't seen. Uh, I've obviously, I mean, I think everyone at this point who knows anything about Christian Bale has heard about the machinist because he did that right before he did Batman Begins and had to like gain all that weight. And it is, I've seen, of course, the, the stills of him in the machinist and it, he's so tiny it doesn't even look real anymore like that's terrifying <laughs> like, that's... yeah it's, it's scary yeah all right so um we are going to take a break i'll talk about criminal habilitation criminal rehabilitation that is uh and then we'll bring back uh becky to talk about monster hello i'm andrew and i'm bernadette and we're the ab film review we're a weekly film review and discussion podcast from perth western australia we're a married couple who like to spend our saturday evenings avoiding reality by discussing and often arguing about the latest films and some classics and getting closer to divorce uh, you can find us on the pod bros network at podbros.com also on twitter at ab film review facebook ab film review and our website abfilmreview.com that's a lot of babies that's it all right so it's time for the psychology section so 
as I mentioned, we're talking about criminal rehabilitation. So we'll talk about that first, and then hopefully we'll get into rehabilitation of sex workers, because uh, I think it's it's definitely a different process depending on the type of crime you commit, whether it's a violent crime or not. All right, so rehabilitation is basically just how we reintegrate people into society after they've been convicted, and it's supposed to be the main objective of penal policy. So what it does, it's supposed to counter habitual offending, which is also known as recidivism. So, of course, there's also alternatives to imprisonment, like community service, probation orders, and other other things that kind of give guidance and aftercare towards the person who who committed this crime, who was convicted of this crime. So actually, there's been a lot of studies uh, that show that successful rehabilitation of prisoners is helped if these things happen. One, if they're placed in if they're not placed in health-threatening situations, enjoy access to medical care, and are protected from other forms of ill treatment. And I think if you know anything, especially about the American prison system, this is not something that's really happening. There are a lot of really bad conditions in American prisons, and uh, medical care is tougher to get to to get than it should be. Uh, and they're certainly not protected from ill treatment, whether you're talking about situations with guards or situations with other prisoners. Also, they need to be able to maintain ties to the outside world, and this is how you get like visitation rights. Uh, they have to learn new skills to assist them with working life on the outside, and it can be argued that prisons are attempting to do that, but, uh, but I think it's a, it's a much longer discussion than we have time for here. And also, they, they enjoy clear and detailed regulations that clarify the safeguards applicable and governing the use and disposal of records of data relating to, to criminal matters. Okay, so we'll talk about kind of legislation a little bit too. So in the United States, which is what we're going to focus on because that's where this movie, Monster, takes place, the United States Code states that judges that are sentencing will make imprisonment decisions recognizing that imprisonment is not an appropriate means of promoting correction and rehabilitation. So they're basically saying out front, like, this is not necessarily going to rehabilitate the person. So take that in into consideration when you're making your decision. Uh, so in 2015, a number of reformers, uh, including the ACLU, uh, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and the Coalition for Public Safety, announced this resolution to reform the criminal justice system in the United States. Uh, their efforts were supported by President Obama, uh, who said that these these reforms would likely improve rehabilitation and workforce opportunities once people have served their sentences. But we have yet to see really what this will come out, because it started in 2015. And over the last few decades, the United States prison population has increased significantly. So prisons are, of course, considered punishment, but they're intended to have the purpose of preventing future crime. Now, there was a recent study that found of the $74 billion spent on incarceration among federal, state, and local prisons, less than 1% of that was spent on prevention and treatment. So that is a huge problem. If you're going to call something a Department of Correction or a Rehabilitation Center, you should be spending way more than 1% on rehabilitating and correcting people so they get to a point where they can get back to society and not go back into prison. They found incarceration not only harms the, the individual, as kind of intended, but also has all these negative effects on the family, the community, and overall society. And actually, one thing that has been shown to reduce recidivism or going back into jail is inmate education. 
And they actually show that inmates tend to take advantage of these education programs if they're, if they're available to them. A recent study showed that earning a GED while incarcerated reduces the rates of returning to prison by 14% for those under 21 and 5% for those over 21. Substance abuse is, of course, a huge issue in the prison system. In between 96 and 2006, despite an increase of population of 12%, the number of people in jail rose by 33%, and the number of individuals that were substance abusers rose by 43%. Now, existing treatment programs have shown solid evidence that these drug treatment programs, along with support after they're released, are really effective at reducing this recidivism. Emotional and mental health counseling is actually a core component of successful inmate rehabilitation. And I know that sounds so crazy. Like you can't just, you know, lock a person up and give them three meals a day and then expect them when they get out to be fine and and to be a, you know, a productive member of society. A lot of people who go into prison systems have been abused. A lot of them are substance abusers or their parents are substance abusers. So if you don't actually treat what's going on, because God knows when they get out, they're not going to have the money to get mental health treatment because it's really expensive. And if they go to a place where it's free or cheap, getting services becomes really challenging. So here's an idea. Let's actually treat them while they're in prison. So once they leave, they hopefully won't come back into prison and be a productive member of society. Now, of course, you need proper inmate motivation and desire from the inmate, because if they don't want to be educated, they're not going to be, and it's going to be less effective. Uh, but if the possibility isn't there, then it's definitely not going to happen. And actually, a recent study showed that more than half of those incarcerated had mental health issues, which is defined as a recent history or symptoms of a mental health problem within the previous 12 months. So it is rampant. All right, so the rest of this section is going to be dedicated to an article about transitioning from sex work to quote-unquote square work, uh, which is essentially, you know, quote-unquote, getting a real job. Um, and this is from Raven Bowen uh, from Durham University. It was published in 2015. And the reason we're going to look at this is I think it's important to distinguish between normal, I guess, criminal rehabilitation and that of sex work, because there's a lot, there's a lot of stigma that goes into sex work. And, you know, it's been termed, you know, the world's oldest profession, it's been around forever. And yet, there is this stigma for someone who has been in that line of work, and then trying to get a job on the straight and narrow, and they are they are viewed in different ways. So in this article, um, this article was started because uh, the author, when she was working as an outreach and support worker, there were 67 women who were sex workers who went missing from the streets of Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, so this was kind of the start of this. So she actually had relationships with some of these women who disappeared. Some of them uh, were pronounced dead uh, when they were found on the property of a serial killer named Robert Picton. So, of course, many of the people who worked in advocacy, like, like this author here, wanted to prioritize health, safety, and rights of sex workers because these are people that will just disappear because there is that stigma and because, in general, people just don't care enough about people who engage in sex work. So they are they're the ones who are more likely to to disappear in that way and for us to to not notice. And that is and that's horrible because these women and men, but mostly women, are human beings and they should have 
rights, regardless of their quote-unquote chosen profession, although many of these women have been forced into this life either you know, by pimps, by, by some by family members, some by uh, drug and alcohol use. So it's not as it's not as simple as like, well, they chose this profession. So they're taking that risk. I think that's kind of that's more than a little inhumane to look at things that way. So there's actually previous work about paths out of sex work. And Sanders in 2007 found four different ways that people leave sex work. One is a reactionary route where people leave unplanned due to a significant event, usually one that inspires fear. Two, gradual planning, where they have time to make financial plans and get themselves steady before they leave. Three, natural progression, where people feel that their time in sex work has run its course, like I'm just, I'm done with this. And four, the yo-yo pattern, where the unplanned exits of sex workers force their return to prostitution, where they're trapped because of either criminal justice involvement or a need for money or substances. So the thing I find really interesting about this study is that they were able to interview and talk to many women of many different ages and many different levels of experience as far as sex work. Like it goes from someone who has been in sex work for about a year and a half and someone who's been in sex work for 30 years. And their ages their ages range from 26 to 61 years old. So, and they, and some of them, you know, have left sex work. Some of them are doing sex work and having a regular job. And some of them are just like kind of re-entered that world after the interview. So you have all these different experiences and there's different races and, you know, you, you got a lot of variety here, which is important. And you also have different like gender expressions. Like you have, you know, one woman who is a femme gender queer person. You have, you know, an Asian heterosexual woman who's married. You have a white bisexual woman who's married with an adult child. I mean, you've got a little bit of everything here, which is good because that means it is more likely anything you get here is more likely to be able to be to be applied to sex workers in general, as opposed to like if you just had a bunch of you know, 21 to 30 year old white women, then it's only going to be sex workers of that type. So it's really good. And actually there is a, there's a gay man in, in this group as well. It's not all women. So a little, like I said, a little bit of everything, which is really good. So what this paper really does is first, it discusses Vancouver's history of violence against sex workers, which is extensive and kind of terrifying. And it reviews the research on people who have exited sex work and bring for, brings forward recommendations for the design of an exit program based on the experience of these 22 active and former sex workers from Vancouver. So there's a bunch of different categories here. There's people they term sex work no more, is people who have left and will not return. Sex work maybe, and those are people who have left and are considering becoming re-involved in sex work, and dual life participants. And those are people who are employed in sex work and conventional and conventional work at the same time. So what's important here is this, I think it really challenges a lot of things. The biggest thing it challenges, though, is we have this view of sex work especially, or criminal enterprises in general, of this kind of binary look at things. Like either you are doing it or you aren't. And if you, as you can see in these comparisons, you have... You know, you have people who have left and will never come back, people who have left and who might come back, and people who are doing both at the same time. It is clearly not a binary. And during these interviews, there's a lot of things discussed, like the fact that many of them had to use deception to obtain resources uh, needed to make changes, like it's lying to survive, which Becky and I will talk about uh, in regards to Monster and Eileen Vernos later in the episode. Uh, the support, actually, that their clients have provided, uh, their their strategic engagement in sex work as a means to exit, 
Like a lot of these women and men can't simply exit because they are not on their feet enough financially to just leave that world. And that's, again, something else we see uh, in Monster, how our character wants to leave and then has to kind of dive back in because because money is a real issue. So you end up doing sex work continually as this means to get yourself out. Um, how they think about re-entry and for some, this kind of dual employment. And here's what the study found qualitatively. So a lot of past studies really look at this transition from sex work to square work, um, and it has a wide range of individual and structural factors which can help us to understand the influence of the decisions of people who end up leaving. Now, in these studies, for the most part, sex work is presented as purely harmful um, and something the sex, worker, sex workers need to remove themselves from. So in this study, of course, we have a very different look at things as it's not just looked at as purely harmful. Like, yes, it is a dangerous profession, but you, you see that there, there are these women and men who might return and who are doing both at the same time. So you have they have they like balance the risks and benefits of employment in both of their fields. So for them, sex work isn't something that they are ever fully in or out of. So instead, the intensity of involvement is what has an effect and it's fluid. It changes depending on their situation. So the good thing about the fact that this study is not framing sex work as harmful is it makes room for participants to trust and discuss openly whether sex work is an option for them in the future or is currently. So it filled a lot of gaps in knowledge about transition and they discussed if they would return and why, what it's like to spend time in isolation, uh, what it's like about the people who support them, which included clients, and, and again, their use of deception to mitigate the effects of stigma and to access resources needed to transition. And this, this especially involves like getting a quote unquote square job and the challenges and benefits of engaging in both these jobs simultaneously. So one thing that was talked about a lot by pretty much all the participants is these horrible accounts of stigma and humiliation during periods of transition. So in order to avoid this, they engaged in these stigma avoiding activities during this transition. So what this article is really getting at is that, especially in this area in Vancouver, government funds should initially go towards hearing the unmediated experiences of active and former sex workers, as well as those who live this dual life. And it's important to note that individuals who engage in sex work are really different in terms of their financial, educational, and emotional needs. So these transition programs that we're going to create must include a lot of things, uh, age-appropriate and culturally relevant gendered support systems, uh, financial literacy, housing, personal and career exploration, and, and entrepreneurialism, and opportunities for seclusion and isolation identified in, in studies of transition. They found that this isolation actually can help where they have time to themselves and can process everything going on. So it's important when we design these programs to not think of sex workers as this monolith, as this, oh, all of them are exactly the same, because there are some people who have who are in better situations and have chosen sex work like fully chosen it, and that becomes a good situation for them. There are those who are forced into it. Um, there are those who are addicted to drugs or alcohol. I mean, there's a lot of different circumstances here, and we have to remember that when we're talking about we're talking about rehabilitation from sex work. If these if these women want that, if these men want that, like you have to you have to take all these things into account. And I think. You know, it's easy for us, especially uh, if you're in really liberal areas, like if, you know, like me, I'm in the West Coast of the United States, and there are sex workers here who have chosen that, and it is it is a business decision purely. Like, it's it's something that, that they have actually wanted to do. Uh, but there are a lot, even in these liberal areas, there are pockets 
um, where women have been either sold into this work coming from from other places. They have been forced into this work and it is a it's much harder to get out. So we have to remember when we stigmatize people who have gotten into sex work that we're not just stigmatizing people who have quote unquote chosen this and that's bad enough. But we're also stigmatizing people that had little or no choice. And that is, as I mentioned before, that is inhumane. And these are people that need help and people that need assistance. And I think it's really our job as a society to help people get a a square job, as it puts here, if that is the best thing for them, if that is what they want, if that helps them escape a really bad situation. And I, I think it's really, it's up to us as a society, not just, and we'd have to actually start thinking of not only sex workers, but especially women as, you know, individuals with agency and people that are worth helping And unfortunately, like in a lot of ways, that's not the society we're living in. Like, I I wish that we were. And I think if you had asked me this three or four years ago, I might have had a different answer. But there is some there's some really bad stuff going on as far as how women and especially people of color and and people of different sexualities are um, are treated. And there are a lot of queer people who are involved in in prostitution, like especially young queer people. Um, and they're the most likely to leave home. They're the most likely to endure violence. They're the mo- most likely to um, to not be able to get out of these situations. So I really do think it is our our job as a society to actually take a look at this and actually create programs that will actually help people and not just throw people in jail. All right. Uh, so that's it for the psychological section. Uh, when we come back, uh, Becky will be back to talk about Monster. Watched the movie? Check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie. We're back to talk about monsters. So, um, you know, we always kind of talk about our histories with this, and my history with this is a history of avoidance. I guess uh, it's been one of those movies like ever since it came out, like there was a lot of publicity around this, especially around Charlize Theron's performance as there should be, which of course we'll talk about in a bit. Um, But this is a movie that I've wanted to see for a long time, but given the subject matter and what I was told about this movie, it's not, it doesn't feel like one of those movies. I'm like, yeah, I'll just throw that on. Like that, that sounds like fun today. I'll watch a story about this, uh, this uh, serial killer that sounds like something I'd like to relax with today. So it's something I felt like, oh, I really have to like sit down and watch like with a capital W. So I never got around to it. But I, you know, watching it this time, we'll talk more about this later. 
But in a lot of ways, this movie was totally unexpected in the way it was framed. So it was a nice surprise in a lot of ways, especially kind of the first half of this movie. So I really actually enjoyed my time with this and think it's I'm kind of mad at myself for having not watched this sooner. (laughs) Uh, So what about you? What's your history with Monster? Well, Monster came out when I was 15, which is a tough age, I think, for most of us. Yeah, Uh, but I remember... (laughs) Yeah, I did not know anything about movies at 15. Yeah. So when this came out, I didn't know much about Charlize Theron at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I just knew that this was a story I wanted to know about. I was extremely interested mm-hmm. in this because I thought, well, this has to be more complex than just a woman who is a serial killer. I mean, right. so I just watched it immediately, which was a mistake. Uh <laughs> Okay, so why was it a mistake at 15? Like, you just weren't ready for the subject matter? You weren't ready for as a film fan? Okay. And the scene uh, where the things happen to her is shocking. Even as an adult, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I watched this at 15. Of course this movie scarred me. Yeah. I mean, I feel like some moments of this scarred me, and I'm in my late 30s. So (laughs) at 15, it is a lot to deal with. And Obviously, your experience of this is going to be much different from mine because I'm a man. Uh, yes. So there, there are things that even if I view them and like, oh, my God, that's so terrible. There's there's a certain amount, I think, of extra empathy that probably goes into viewing this film as a woman. Yeah, and there's a sort of weird – this is going to make me sound like I'm crazy. But there's a bit of like empowerment from it. Oh, I don't know. I think that's totally valid. I think, you know, it's essentially like when you boil it down, it's the story of this woman who is a prostitute and, and in, you know, throughout the, throughout the kind of arc of this movie gets to a point where, you know, she views herself and they've interviewed uh, Eileen Vernos, Vernos about this, about how she feels like, you know, despite the fact these men are paying for this and she's quote unquote getting something for it. She feels like she's being raped and she is striking back, you know? And I think that's, and I think the movie humanizes her in a way that you, you feel that. And even me as a, as a guy, I was rooting for her all the way through Mm -hmm. this movie. Like, you're like, yeah, get him. Like I had no, I did not have these moments of like, oh, this is such a terrible person. I was just like, you know, I got no problem with what she's doing. So maybe, (laughs) maybe that's something about me. I don't know, but I did, I did have a similar reaction. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the direction of this movie. So Patty Jenkins, like, of course, the first time I heard her name was associated with this movie. And then she was slated to direct Thor 2, uh, for Marvel and directed uh, a lot of that movie and then was fired, uh, for unknown reasons. Like I started looking this up and it seems like there's a lot of conflicting stories about why she was asked to leave. And Natalie Portman, the star of that movie was really, really upset. So it's like, she actually hasn't made that many movies, which is a goddamn shame because this movie is brilliant. I mean, this movie is fantastic. And honestly, if a man had directed a movie of this caliber and then got fired off of a Marvel movie, I, I don't think that we would have the same, the same career trajectory as we do with Patty Jenkins. Yeah. And I honestly, I didn't really know much about her at first when you're like, wonder what we're going to do this for wonder woman week. I'm like, why? And then then I looked it up. I'm like, Oh, duh. Right. They like, she directed the same. I just don't follow any kind of like superhero stuff. So I'm totally out of loop. That's the first time I've heard that story about Thor. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, at Patty Jenkins filmography, she has a total of 10 credits 
Um, two of them are shorts, and it looks like six of them are TV. This is the first movie that she has made since Monster. Like that is oh, crazy. It's horrible. I mean, that's yeah. it's completely insane that this movie that is so highly thought of in cinema circles, and you know, I mean, I I read a review uh, from Roger Ebert, like kind of, I think it was one of his favorites of that year, if not if not his top of the year, talking about Charlize Charlize Theron's performance being like not makeup but transformative, and a lot of that has to do with decisions made by the director. I think it's easy to just focus on a performance and be like. Oh, this just stands out so much. But I think this movie, when you look at the at how it's paced and how it's framed, like a lot of that has to do with Patty Jenkins. And she also wrote the screenplay for this. Yes. So so the fact that she's not getting work, I mean, she directed, you know, an episode of Arrested Development, two episodes of Entourage, uh, and then uh two episodes of The Killing, you know, and it's just like, what what are we doing? Like, give this woman a chance. Like it's you know, there's a, been a lot of uh, kind of to do lately at the Cannes Film Fest, at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, about like the lack of female directors, and I think this is the perfect example of like yeah. an obviously talented woman behind the camera that is not being given a chance to even do smaller films, let alone big budget films. So thank God, you know, whoever thought I would be saying this, but thank God for DCEU <laughs> to like <laughs> to like put her behind the camera, you know, like. Finally, like we get yeah. we get a chance to see more of her work. And granted, like I don't think it's going to be as deep or as moving <laughs> in Wonder Woman as 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 it is in Monster. But it's good to see her get the opportunity for big budget filming. So, what stood out to you about about the direction of this? Um, I guess the first thing that stood out is a sympathetic eye. I think mm. I think Patty really understands women, and I think she really understood the character and framed her. In a setting that is harsh, and but somehow still cultivates that humanity and empathy for her. Yeah, I mean, I think you bring up a great point that this is a story about about a woman who is not she's not an easy character to like from the very beginning of the film, uh, from her introduction to Christina Ricci's character. Like she is violent, she's abrasive, she drinks a lot, she she does not she's not a a woman who you're you're just easily going to be drawn to. Um, so the way that this movie is filmed is is strangely soft, uh, and I think you're right. I think it it takes a female director to make a movie like this. And the thing that really hammered it home for me there is a there's a sex scene later in this film between our two main characters of of Eileen and Selby. And it is the most non-performative, non-male gaze sex scene I've seen in a major film in a long time. It's, and especially when you cast someone like Charlize Theron where, you know, uh, she's performed in roles before this that are very, very much focused on the male gaze. So it was really mm -hmm. interesting that, that this was filmed in such a way that it wasn't – that it was sexual without being titillating. And that is, that is a gift uh, as a filmmaker. You don't see that a lot. Oh, I thought it was titillating as a woman. Right. I guess uh, titillating is maybe the wrong word. It doesn't feel um, – what is the Sleazy. word? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's, it's just to get the audience hot and bothered. Like it, it feels like right. it works for the characters I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, because I think what you're watching is a formative experience for both of these women. Right. And I think that comes across on screen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and there's some other like small moments of direction that I wanted to point out. One of there's a line in the script where our main character says, "One day it just stopped," and there is, and right at that moment, there is a sharp cut to now, um, to the to the present day. And I thought that was a really, a really interesting decision to to kind of to blunt this moment. You know, we have all these moments early in the film of like talking about the past and everything she's gone through. And then the one day it just stopped and the film literally stops as well. And I like that. I like that moment for us as an audience to to not get so caught up in the past and to be brought into the now um, with Eileen. Yeah, that's actually probably my favorite scene. I know we'll talk about that later, but mm-hmm. um, the opening there where it starts and you're like, okay, I'm I'm understanding this person. And then that, that blunt moment, like it just shocks you and yeah. you realize, oh shit, like we're going to, we're going to go hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. This is not, yeah. this is not your kind of, because it does start out in this way. You feel like, oh, we're going to go through this person's whole life leading yeah. up to this. And it is not that like she gives you just enough to yeah, yeah. let you know who this character is before we get to who who she's become as opposed to yeah. like let's show the whole process. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, mean, we can fill in the blanks from from what we're shown yeah. to know how she got from there to today. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And there's a there's another moment uh and it's also one of my favorite scenes when our two main characters for the first time are lying in bed together and there's nothing overtly sexual going on in that scene. I mean, you mm-hmm. definitely know that Selby is attracted to her. <laughs> I mean, that is clear from maybe the opening when they first meet. But she she kind of strokes her face and tells her how pretty she is. And I love that I love that the director makes the choice to go close up on Charlize Theron's face in that moment because you really get to see her reaction to that and how she's never really been treated softly. Like in her yeah, life. Yeah, you know what? I was reading the screenplay this morning and um, at that spot, it says uh, Eileen's chest heaves as she absorbs the affection. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, that's exactly perfect. Yeah. I mean, that is a perfect uh, that's a perfect kind of screen direction in the script and a perfect performance note from Charlize Theron because you get that and you get that in Mm -hmm. this little two second moment of like you just see her kind of her pupils dilate and this like little intake of breath and actually as I was watching it given her initial reaction to to Selby touching her uh, at the bar Mm -hmm. I was legitimately worried in this moment like how is she going to react like she's in this really intimate moment and this is not a character who values intimacy or trust intimacy and I think it says a lot that from Selby, she, like you said, she absorbs it. She takes it in instead of reacting violently. And it's it almost feels mm-hmm. like it's the first time in years that she's felt anyone care about her in in any way. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this movie is kind of – there's a – it's not a movie where there's a lot of things that you overtly notice from a directorial perspective. She, I think she has a really kind of soft hand behind the camera. Like you do feel like you are involved in these people's lives. You don't have – you don't have these big – you know, these big moments of cinematography are not here because that's not the point of a movie like this. The point, I think, is to humanize Eileen and to understand her struggle. And I think and I think the director does like just kind of a masterful job here. There's there's not a lot of moments where you feel her behind the camera and you notice that you're watching a movie. You feel like you are involved in these women's lives. 
Yeah, that's that's a big thing. I was looking at the list and I thought, what am I going to write for direction? She's right. just there. Right. <laughs> and, and sometimes yeah. that can almost feel like a slight to a director, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it is. I think there is a there's very few directors who can do this well. There are some directors where you feel like, oh, you just put the camera there and you just walked away. And that's definitely not how you feel here. You do feel that sense of intimacy is built into the way that Patty Jenkins directs this film. And you really do feel it. And I think if you don't, this movie falls flat on its face. If you don't care about these characters, and that is a tough, that's a tough sell when you're making a movie about a serial killer. Like, let's be blunt. That is, that is what, and who she becomes. So mm-hmm. the first half of this movie is so important because it's not as if the movie opens with her killing someone. Like we're not going right. for shock value. It opens with her deciding whether she's going to live. You know, and I, I that's one bit of the uh, the kind of narration that I really love. The whole thing about like I have this last, I can't remember if it's five or $10. I have this last bit. So I'm not going to let people get away with paying me and me not spending it. So before I do anything, I'm going to spend this money. And then she meets essentially the love of her life, at least the way the movie frames this. So I, I love Mm -hmm. that that's the way the movie set up instead of going for shock value, which would be really easy to do. And I think that's what I thought this movie was going to be because the only shot I'd ever seen of this movie before watching it is her in the courtroom. And I think that's, Yeah, and I think – and that's like the very end of the film. Like it's barely a part of the movie at all. And I just felt like, oh, it's going to be a movie about a serial killer and we're going to have a court case. Like I just – I've seen that a thousand times and that is definitely not what this movie is. So (laughs) Yeah, not at all. Yeah. All right, so let's move into the acting. So of course we'll start with uh, Charlize Theron. Um, So I remember this getting a lot of publicity both the year it came out and the year after at the Academy Awards because I think the year after was the year that Nicole Kidman won for The Hours. Um, and it was, it got a lot of publicity cause it was like, oh, this is how, this is how women get Academy, nom- Academy Award nominations as win is they quote unquote get ugly for a role. Um, which is wildly offensive already. Uh, but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is not, this is not a performance of like, well, I'm just going to put on a fake nose and I'm, no. and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, do the regular acting I do. I'm just going to, this is, I mean, within, I would say a minute of this movie starting, I forgot it was her. Like, and that is impressive because Charlize Theron is one of my favorites and she is very well known now. I mean, especially watching this in 2017 after Mad Max and Fate of the Furious and every other giant big budget movie she's in, like she's a recognizable face. So the fact that you completely, you completely forget who she is and she just becomes Eileen Vernos within five minutes of this movie it's so, so impressive, and it's such a moving performance. And I actually tweeted about this, that, like, she has given three performances that I think, if they don't, they should go down as some of the best female performances of the generation. And to do that three different times in three different genres is just amazing. Like, this is not a just a one-time thing. Like, she is an amazing actress and I think deserves even more accolades than she has gotten. I completely agree. I think she totally killed it in this role. I think it's obvious that she studied Eileen. Yeah. And she, Eileen has a lot of idiosyncrasies that I think some actors could kind of take too far. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, you know, she's throwing her head back. She uh, fixing her hair. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it would be easy for some 
actors to play this role to a kind of a cheesy place. Yes. But you can tell that Charlize has studied everything and understands that character like to her core. And she's comfortable playing it, which is super important. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that's probably the most important point in a in a in a movie like this. Like it, you could tell if an actor isn't comfortable playing this kind of character because it's difficult. It's I mean, this is a woman who, whether you root for her or not, I mean, is a multiple murderer. Um, so that's mm-hmm. a tough place to inhabit as an actor. And if you are the least bit wary of that, I think that reads on screen, but she just completely inhabits this character, which, which makes you care about her even more. Yeah. And I think, um, you mentioned that she's not easy to like at the beginning. Um, I did not feel that I feel Hmm. straight from the beginning, opening with her as a child and understanding where she's coming from. And that might be personal because of my past work, but, um, I I immediately saw her as someone who wears anger as a shell and I can see through that. And I think the way that Patty films it with giving us so much empathy as an audience member, I think empathy always dissolves fear. So immediately I, you know, Eileen's like screaming and yelling and being (laughs) aggressive. And I just think, oh, baby, (laughs) it's okay. Even though she's like screaming, don't fucking touch me. Like, yeah, it's okay. It's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pointless to try and pick apart this performance because this is as close to a perfect performance as you're going to see. I mean, there is not a false note struck here with, with Charlize, like every single, even the, I think what's most impressive, I think are, are some of the nonverbal moments. Like, I mean, we'll talk it, we'll talk about it later in favorite scenes, but there's some moments of just pure, she, she's purely defeated internally and is saying something mm-hmm. different to other characters. Like she is pumping herself up as if things are fine and the decision she's about to make is okay. But you could just yeah. see just behind her eyes, this regret and this, like, I wish things were different. And it all comes across without, without any needless, like overacting or needless directorial tricks. Like so much. I think, I think Patty Jenkins knows what she has in Charlize Theron. And she, she just kind of lets her, lets her inhabit this part and just, you know, let's not distract from Eileen's story because she is so on point. Yeah, absolutely. I think on the other hand, um, so I, I was not a fan of Selby in any way. Okay. What um, did, why is that? I felt, I really felt like Christina Ricci played this off like um, she was always one minute away from bursting out laughing. Mm, I can see that. Um, and I don't know if it's either because of her performance or the character. I don't know much about Selby, but she came across just as this like needy, whiny little girl. And she just upset me through the whole film. Right. Um, So I actually did a a little bit of kind of background research on Selby. And it seems like Selby is the character they changed the most um, from things that supposedly or really actually happened, I think. And I think they did that for a purpose. Um, I didn't have a big issue uh, with Christina Ricci, I think Charlize Theron like acts circles around her, but I don't think that's that's necessarily a huge surprise. I mean, I think I would expect that going in. Um, I think the reason they wrote her the way they did, because they basically made her a deer in headlights for the entire movie, like almost yeah. almost comically unaware <laughs> of of her yeah. surroundings, you know, and and I think I think they did it for the purpose of 
of helping us root for Eileen in trying to kind of support this relationship. Um, they, they do an interesting thing is that they, they have some really interesting gender roles, uh, that pop up in this. Um, they definitely have Eileen play this role of the, you know, the breadwinner, the caretaker. And I think that's part of the reason I would get annoyed with Selby is she's so almost purposefully helpless. Like I can't do anything. I can't, you know, you said you were going to support me and I can't, I can't, even after the cast is off and all that, she's just, she's so childlike that. Yeah, get a fucking job. Yeah. Like go, <laughs> I mean, you don't have a criminal past. Maybe you could get yeah. a job and help yeah. support. Um, but it would be interesting to see how Eileen's character would react to that. Cause she does seem very, very much this character that wants to support Selby and wants to be the one that she can be proud of. And I think that is yeah. an important character moment for Eileen. Uh, but Selby, you do, she is a really hard character to root for. I think you root for the relationship, but I don't sure. think you root for Selby. Do you think Selby is written in this sort of deer in headlights, totally un- not understanding way for the audience? I mean, for somebody who has not had any um, interaction with sex workers or um, addicts or criminals. So she, I'm thinking specifically yeah. of the scene in the roller disco where she's, she's like, are you a prostitute? And yeah. she's like, what do you do? Uh, what, what do the guys ask you to do? Like she's asking all these questions that people who have nothing, no idea would be asking. And it's sort of like informing us. Hmm. You know, I didn't think of that, but I think you're probably right. It's, it's so hard for me to separate that uh because i've had i've had clients who who worked in sex work i i have a fair amount of knowledge about sex work and about addiction and all that stuff so it's so hard for me to separate myself from that mm-hmm. and so that scene although i like the 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 kind of uh the uh the kind of roller disco scene itself after that conversation that conversation yeah. was super painful for me to listen to uh <laughs> because i felt like what are you a fucking idiot like what <laughs> She's a, what do you think that they do? What do you, sex. That's yeah. what, that's a, <laughs> she is a sex worker. Like, it, so it was very frustrating for me, but I could see if you were someone who had never had any experience or any foothold into that world that you might want to ask those stupid questions, you know, like it's yeah. so, but for me, she came off like kind of infantile and some of it also Absolutely. has to do with her performance and her vocal tendencies. Like she has a little bit more of a high pitch to her voice and she has a very baby face. Um, So that yeah. combined with those lines, I was just like, what are we, oh my God, how can, and so the, the love story I think is really sweet, but there are moments peppered in there where I was like, Eileen, you can do better. Like you, you can find someone else because <laughs> Selby is not the girl for you. And she proves it by the end of the movie. Oh yeah. And their relationship is sick all the way through as much as I'm rooting for them just to find some love, just a right. slice of love and shitty lives. Um, the whole time I'm like, this is bad. You know, this isn't going to work out. And right. yeah. Yeah. It's not going to work out for anybody. Like, but I yeah. find it interesting and you can tell it's Charlize Theron's movie because I think you feel worse for Eileen than you do for Selby. And if you look at, if you look at just the events that happen in this movie, I mean, Selby does get kind of a raw deal. Like, you know, she's in this situation where she's not allowed to express and be who she is sexually. She finally meets somebody and, you know, that is not the best relationship. There's, there's yelling and screaming. There's, I mean, there's murder for God's sakes. I mean, it's like, it's not a good situation for her, but I, I, I don't think there's a moment 
during the movie where I actively was feeling bad for Selby, but I was actively feeling bad for the serial killer. So <laughs> I don't know what that. Yeah, I you feel know. the exact same way. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting in terms of acting, there's not many other main characters. I mean, we have this like very odd, almost cameo from Bruce Dern in this movie. I love it. Well, I and, love it. And I, and I liked his character, but I, I think when I saw the cast list, I was like, oh, Bruce Dern will be showing up a bunch in this movie because he's like a known commodity. And I yeah. loved every moment he was in it. And I, I think my, honestly, my favorite rela- relationship in the movie is between him and Charlize Theron's character. I think Absolutely. their their understanding and their and the empathy he has for her without having to say it, like and the respect that he has for her, right? And he he always, yeah. even though he's giving her things and doing her favors, he never makes her feel like she owes him something. It's always just yeah. coming from here. You can use this. I don't really want it. And even if you feel like he's lying in that moment of like I don't want this sandwich. He knows that she needs it more than he does. So just out of the goodness of his heart, he's like, yeah, and you'll pay me when you can. And I just love those moments. I actually wanted more scenes between the two of them. Absolutely. Because I think that sort of treatment, those sorts of relationships are what heal people. It's not treating people like a charity case, you know, not volunteering at (laughs) the drop-in shelter and like feeling good about yourself. Right. And talking to people like their lives are so poor. He does it perfectly. And you can tell he's got his own problems like i think he's like oh yeah a little bit crazy and thinks the cia is after him right <laughs> but you know he's uh i mean who I does he's it? the best I mean, relationship it's... with her yeah yeah <laughs> no no i totally agree i just i was so moved by these little moments and it's another example mm-hmm. of not needing to overdo it with the script there's a, they don't we don't like follow him when he goes home and you know he thinks about what he's done for the day or he says like <laughs> yeah. I know you're gonna get to a better place like there's no like rousing speech it's just like yeah. here's a sandwich because you look like you're hungry like like yeah. a decent fucking human being like I think exactly. and I I just I do really really enjoy those moments I just found myself wanting more Bruce Stern and less Christina Ricci in this movie yeah. So. Um, so let's talk about the writing. Of course, also uh, screenplay also written by uh, Patty Jenkins. And there are several moments um, that really stood out to me in really good ways. There is in the very beginning of the film, we kind of talked about how it talks a little bit about not her childhood, but definitely her adolescence and her. I mean, I, I think it's a really smart decision to essentially show her wanting this acceptance uh, and willing to use her body to do it and being kind of wronged from the beginning. Like there's this pattern Mm -hmm. of men wronging her in her life. So you can kind of see the process of how she gets to where to where she gets to. Um, And there's a particular line where she's talking about her dreams and what she wanted from life as an adolescent. And the very next line is her talking about, I just want a beer. And I love like that shows in a single line how far she's come. Like where she is as far as hope and want and desire in her life, where it starts out like I want this perfect fantasy, and now it's just like I want a beer to get through the night. And it's so moving, like just in a simple line. Yeah, it's like I'm almost like um a microscopic view of everybody's life. I mean, yeah. You grow up with all of these dreams and then eventually you're like, Oh my god, I just need to pay my student loans. Right. <laughs> oh <laughs> come on. Let's that today. is a dream. What are you talking yeah. about? That, I just want to uh I mean, go out to dinner and not have to cry when the bill comes. That's <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just 
want to go to the VIP theater. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I see this in IMAX. Um, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a really, I mean, everybody kind of has those dreams that die. Not to be depressing. No, but, but it's think, true. I mean, we all, that's yeah. why they're called dreams. They're not reality. Yeah. Like we, you know, we, I mean, I'm in my late thirties and I'm in college still. So like that is not how I dream this would go. <laughs> you know, that is reality. Sometimes life gets in the way life happens. And I, I like that that is here. I think it's something, I think you bring up a great point that this is something not only that shows how far she has fallen, but it's something we can all relate to, even if not at that extreme level. I think what surprised me most about this movie in terms of the writing, and we kind of reference this a little bit, is I did not expect this to be framed as like a queer love story. Had no idea that's where this was going. Like I said, I thought I was walking into a movie about a serial killer, and it kind of is. But the first hour of this movie, even though we talked about Selby is not the the character we're drawn to the most, it's a really sweet queer love story and that is something that we don't get enough of in film and i really loved that that's the way this set this up because then it gave us a real reason to care about eileen given what she does later absolutely i also think this movie was surprisingly funny yeah um especially like voiceovers um sometimes the looks that charlie's gives herself in the mirror that kind (laughs) of remind you of that child that childlike sort of aspect of her personality like right. there was a lot of times i laughed watching this and i i don't remember doing that at 15 but again at 15 i was both terrified of the situation and very confused sexually and not sure what's <laughs> like, happening what so. is happening in this movie yeah, yeah. i mean this, this is a movie that like i mean even if you take out some of the the kind of violent like sexual violence and the actual violence in this movie it's still a movie that like thank god i didn't watch this at 15 like as a sophomore (laughs) in high school i was not ready like this is not like (laughs) this is not an okay movie for me to watch not in in as in it would have scarred me although it would have just like there is so much subtlety and nuance in how these characters interact and relate and the reasons why they do things that i just wouldn't have i wouldn't have captured at that age. So I'm kind of glad that this came out, you know, much later in my life because I would not have been ready. Yeah, I, I hear that. Sometimes actually watching it, I wonder how much this movie and this isn't the only movie with this kind of subject matter I watched at the time. But um, I wonder how much influence it had on my life, you know, ending up working really mm-hmm. heavily with women trying to get out of sex work and right. addiction. And and I've always been fascinated with that kind of uh, life situation and I've had a lot of empathy for it. So going back to look at it now after my experiences, it, the viewing is so different, but also that sort of scared 15 year old is still inside of me. It's still like, Oh God, <laughs> what am I yeah. watching? Yeah. No. And that's totally valid. I think this, this movie does t- the script does two things that really surprised me. The first thing is that it would have been really easy since you're going to change some things about some characters. It's been really easy to have a kind of, bullshit fight about selby being jealous uh of eileen like sexually like as far as all the prostitution going on i think that's a really easy route to go to start a fight between these characters and i kind of love that that never really comes up like in a weird way it almost it becomes this this issue of selby going like and it's kind of creepy but like get back out there go be a prostitute which is really disturbing and a very different way to handle things I think it's a really selfish way too. I mean, she's yeah. okay with just with make Eileen that money going out. I mean, that's to prostitute to support yeah. her. Yep. And I think if you 
I think it's obvious Eileen did not want to live that lifestyle anymore if she didn't have to. It's obviously harming her. Yep. Um, but Selby doesn't care. She just wants the bills paid. She wants to be taken care of. Yeah, she's the princess. She just wants someone to take care of her, you know, and that's, yeah. you know, so it's it's really interesting that the that it goes that route, because I think it would have been easier to to go to go the other way. But I don't think it would have fit with both of these characters arcs and their journeys. Uh, yeah, definitely. The other thing that I noticed is that. OK, so I have to kind of tread lightly because this scene is really damaging and really really awful. So the kind of first sequence of rape that we see in this movie um, is horrible to watch, but strangely necessary for us to get behind Eileen because by the time she kills this man, we are happy. Mm -hmm. Like we, we are rooting for her. There's like almost a, I felt in myself, like almost this bloodlust, like, yes, kill that man like he absolutely deserves it and it makes me wonder if they had this you know and it's kind of framed in this way that this is what finally makes her snap as as it should given what happens mm -hmm. to her but it makes me wonder if we just showed this scene where you know he paid her money and they had sex and then he, she killed him are we as behind eileen as we are the way the movie is currently constructed i don't think we would be or most people would be. Right. Because I think, you know, to to people who have limited understanding, that's just part of the job. And I think maybe what happens to Eileen is probably not the first time something like that has happened to her. Right. Um, and, you know, like, oh, hang on, I'm going to get emotional. I can't get emotional about it. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> it's totally fine. No, I mean, it's a, yeah. it is a scene that, that pulls that out of a person. I think it is a really emotional moment. And I think, I think to me, what, what sets, what sets it over the edge is given the kind of queer love story that we talked about for the first time in the movie, she has something to fight for something to live for. Whereas at the beginning of this movie, she was contemplating pretty seriously ending her own life. And yeah. she has kind of found something that she wants to hold on to. And when this happens to her, probably not for the first time, I think that is what sets her over the edge. It's like, kind of like, no, fuck this. I am not putting up with this. I am not standing for this anymore. So I think when yeah. that happens, we as an audience, which is a really strange place to be, and we relish this violence that she enacts on this man. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was like by myself and I felt like cheering. I was like, good. And I think, and I think it's interesting because as the movie continues, even when she's, she's taking out people that maybe deserve it a little bit less, we are still kind of with her up until that moment with the, the guy who just saw her face. Like that was his big mistake. And he was, yeah. you know, he just wanted to help. He was honestly a good human being. But these other guys who didn't, you know, who did not force themselves on her, did not rape her, we still are in her corner. We're still like, yeah, that's fine. You know, she she's earned this almost with everything that she's put up with through this movie. And that includes the rape and that includes her treatment by uh, by Selby. And that includes her treatment by by the world at large and all those sequences where she's trying to go straight and get a quote unquote real job. Like we yeah. we understand where she's coming from and we're like, yeah, go get them. Like we do really feel that bloodlust. 
Especially after the first one, when she she goes out with men and she tries to, you know, like instigate things with them mm-hmm. because she sees some something dark in them and she wants to pull it out. So she has a reason to kill them. Right. Like I even in those cases was like, that's right. You know, that guy's a piece of shit. Right. Make him prove it. Kill him. Right. The, the daddy one... moment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And there's a there's one guy too who's like just nervous and it's his first time picking up and right. she's like all right I'm not gonna kill this guy I'll right. just blow him like you're like fine. you can tell she's <laughs> she's not a monster she's a human right, right. and I, I think yeah. it's it's interesting you bring that up because I think it's uh, I I love the title of this movie I think it's a brilliant decision and I guess that that's filed under writing under the script is that that yeah. is how she's seen and the mm-hmm. the point of this movie is to kind of you know, pick up that rock and figure out like, okay, what is actually going on beneath the surface? Why would a person go this route? Why would they enact this violence? And I think by the end of the movie, we under, even if we can't fully agree with everything she's done, we understand the choices she has made, which makes this a great film. I think it's a wonderful film, especially what, if you're watching footage of Eileen, um, she's scarier in real life oh, yeah. than she comes across in the movie. And um, I watched a lot of the, the crime criminal footage and stuff because I was just fascinated with the story. And I, I wanted to know what would happen to her because, you know, she had so many extenuating circumstances. Yeah. Um, and this movie really, I think, was a, a gift. Yeah. I find it interesting also that they they shied away from the mental health aspect of this movie because I guess I I did some research and she's been she had been diagnosed uh, with two disorders one of them being borderline personality disorder um, but I I kind of love the fact that they choose not to focus on the mental health and not stigmatize yeah. that further because I think it would be really easy to do that and also of course she's diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder which is like the easiest diagnosis if someone has killed someone that is like yeah. the go-to but I like that they instead of doing that like let's actually humanize this person and see why she made the decision she did instead of instead of like demonizing her like she's not enough already yeah, and I felt like a lot of the dialogue that they wrote for her uh, was really realistic. Um, she's really she speaks really frankly, which is refreshing. Yes, um, even if it's offensive at times. And <laughs> you know, I <laughs> I mean yes. lies a lot, but you can tell that her lies are almost always well-meaning yeah. or protective or just habitual to survive. Right. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you bring up well-meaning because I think. About half of her lies are well-meaning for the people in her life, and half of them are well-meaning for her. And not in a self-serving way, but just in a way that she has had to lie to live. And if she hadn't, she would have been dead a long time ago. So it becomes, it becomes just a survival tactic. It's not, it's not something we can look at and be like, well, that's morally wrong that, that she lied. Like, no, if it saves your life, you go ahead and lie. Like that's, that seems fair to me. I think survival trumps all. And I think you get that from Charlize Theron's performance here. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the production value. So there's one thing that really stood out to me as such a great, great, phenomenal choice made by the director as far as production value. And it's that first scene where Eileen and Selby are in bed together. And the choice to have this tiny, like, single bed that they're lying in together forces this intimacy from the very beginning. Like we have the intimacy of them kind of drinking together and spending an evening together and really enjoying each other's company. But that bed is so small and they are so close. It almost makes us feel uncomfortable. 
And that also reads oh, yeah. on Eileen. Like she is, she's not used to being this. I mean, to be frank, she's not used to being this close to somebody who is there for something other than their own satisfaction. Yes. And I think to have those moments of them together where they cannot be apart, there's no way given the size of these two women's bodies that they cannot be touching. And I think that is, I mean, they could have, they could have made a bigger bed and like had to, had to kind of move things around. But the decision to have this bed that barely fits one person and have these two adult humans in it is such a smart choice. And it puts us right there with them. Yeah. Selby's room is the top on my production value list because putting Eileen in Selby's room is so weird. Yes. I think she's like borrowing a pajama set and you see her in this pajama set. Oh, it's a great point. It's like up to her shins. Like, yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's such a soft suburban little girl's room almost. Yep. And to see Selby or to see Eileen in it, you're thinking like this, you don't belong here. You know, you haven't been in a place like this for so long. And you can tell that she feels the same way, but she's just going to go for it. And right. like you mentioned that you feel uncomfortable. That scene is so uncomfortable. Yep. I mean, the whole the whole thing with her laying there and she's like, can I touch your face? I'm going, oh, my God. No. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why I said like when that line first happened, I was like, oh, God, something terrible is going to happen. Like, like yeah. you guys have not touched before. The last time you tried to touch her, she smacked your hand away and you're just going to like rub your hand on her face. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. That's gutsy, I guess. Yeah. Way to go, Selby. I mean, shoot your shot, I guess. But like, that seems like, seems like a, uh, a poor choice. And I was just thinking as you were talking about this room, uh, and it's something that didn't really occur to me as I was watching. And I think it's something that would come up on second and third watch, which I'm planning to do because there's just so much built into this movie that you won't get on a first watch that if you just looked at that room, you know who the character is. Like, you know yeah. who Selby is like just from looking at that room. And she, I guess lives up might be the wrong word. She lives down to that room. Like she is, mm-hmm. she is that little girl who has not really experienced much. Like she's experienced, let's not be unfair. She's experienced some pain in her life yeah. and she has yeah. not been allowed to be the person that she is meant to be. But when you talk about life experiences, it's so very limited, especially when contrasted with what Eileen has gone through, like in the last week, let alone the rest of her (laughs) life. You know, so these two people, even though it is a sweet love story, just by looking at that room, you can see how mismatched they are. Yes. I think the other thing for production value that struck me is there's this really overpowering music going on uh, right before Eileen's first kill. And and I think it's a really smart decision because it just it's it's abrasive and it is like battering us as an audience as she is being treated in the worst possible way. And it's it makes that scene, if possible, even more awful and uncomfortable when you combine the music with Shirley Theron's performance in that scene, which is heartbreaking. Yeah, I think it's a great choice because you're watching someone be taken advantage of and sort of um, overpowered and we're being overpowered by what we're seeing and hearing. And it sort of puts you in that situation as close as you can be without being there. Yeah. It's, it's even then it's uncomfortably close. Like I I don't even want to be that close to this. Like it's like, I've seen a lot of movies and unfortunately rape is really common 
in movies. Like it's, it's become this weird, like shorthand, easy way to make someone evil. So when they get their comeuppance, we're okay with it. But this is probably the most affected emotionally I've been by a scene like that in a long time. Like there's sometimes when you watch so many movies, you're like, ah, nothing affects me anymore. It'll be, it'll be fine. But that like really, it, it turned my stomach to watch this scene and it's extra impressive from the directorial perspective because it's not as if it's not as if they show things in slow motion or really really zoom in on things we just get Charlize Theron's performance her facial performance and that is enough Mm -hmm. to to turn my stomach like it was it was rough to watch like I almost didn't want to continue watching it is that disturbing yeah and I obviously as a horror fiend like I've seen right (laughs) unspeakable things but i still turned my face away right. watching this yeah. yeah i mean i think that says it all right there and i think so much of it is dependent on the genre you're watching like i think if you go in to a horror movie you know it's going to be gross you know it's going to be over the top so you can kind of you can distance yourself a little mm-hmm. from that whereas this is a movie that is about a real person and i think i i had that constantly in my head like this happened to this woman this is real yes. So to put yourself and in that things mindset. things like this happen to women all the time. I mean, yes. in my work, I've heard stories the same as this. I've heard stories worse than this. They're yeah. not my stories to tell. Right. But um, knowing that, that this happens is just heartbreaking. Yeah, that's the thing is that, I mean, I've, you know, I've worked with women who have been in sex work. I've worked uh, with, um, with vic- victims of domestic violence. Um, and you're right. This is not. I mean, this is not even close to the worst of it, but it's yeah. it's bad enough um, for any decent human being to watch this and be uncomfortable. Like it would actually yeah, kind of concern me if I watched this with someone and they weren't disturbed by this. Like this is yeah. genuinely very disturbing. <laughs> this is horrible. Uh, was there anything else about production value that you wanted to mention before we move to favorite seems like the wrong word, but most memorable scenes maybe in Monster? Um. I just wrote music, LOL, just because the, the time period. It's <laughs> a great note. <laughs> <The music>. That's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think um, the music is a really interesting choice, but that will come into favorite scenes more, mostly the roller disco. Just want to okay. talk a lot about that. Oh, yeah. God, I'm so glad you brought that up because I almost forgot uh, that this is – I'm sure you'll talk about this. We're about to jump to favorite scenes now. But I love the non-ironic use of Journey as a romantic <laughs> song between these two women. I was like like not laughing in a way where I was mocking the movie, but just this genuine like heartfelt laugh of, as, as I was watching this moment of how sweet this is and how time-bound yeah. it was. Yeah, absolutely. So can I assume that that was one of your favorite scenes? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, I think in that in that scene, I think we're like, we're so openly rooting for them to have that moment. At least I was. And then you have this moment of fear, too, because you realize like what this town is like and what her family situation is like. And they are making out in public. Uh, and you do yeah. have this moment of like, uh, and it's really awesome to see this passion between these two women because you are rooting for them, but it pulls you out of it just the tiniest bit because you start having these realizations of like everyone can see, which is so indicative of the queer experience in general. Yeah, especially if you have been in a small town and you've been in situations mm-hmm. like that, you know 
you can imagine what's going to happen after, but you want them to have that moment anyway. Yeah. Like I think I never cheered so hard for them as I did at the roller disco. And yeah, also I think it's downhill from there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the last time that you feel really happy about them. Yeah. Um, because they have that, that moment of connection in that moment of like, Hey, fuck everybody who's looking at us. Mm-hmm. Let's just do this. Right. And that music is going, it's so loud. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to cheer as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's, there's two scenes that I think Charlize Theron really, I mean, she shines throughout this whole movie, but there's two scenes that are really impactful. And there's the scene where she admits to killing someone. For the first time. Mm -hmm. And then there's her kind of utter breakdown scene later in the film. And both of these scenes, like even in a vacuum, if you know nothing about the plot of this movie, are so moving and so impactful. Like this performance by Charlize Theron where it's like measured and subtle throughout the whole movie. I love that we can see – we can see her holding it in for the whole movie. So when it finally gets let out in this rage and this crying and this freak out – it doesn't feel overdone. It feels like, no, this no. is this is how it should be. This is how yeah. you would feel and how you would act in those moments. And there is a moment kind of after um, after that when she's agreeing to kind of – or before that actually when she's agreeing to going back to being a prostitute, which I kind of mentioned earlier, like her just kind of saying like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'm going to go back to doing that. Who am I kidding? That's who I am, which was mm-hmm. – I think to me was the most heartbreaking moment of the film. Like that, Absolutely. that's who I am. I, why, why did I think I could possibly do something else? And I have seen that in women's eyes before in my, in my line of work, as I'm sure you have too. And it is yeah. so, it was so real and so brutal to watch. Yeah, there is such a realness to, to this that I, I respect it so much. I think it's really easy to get roles like this wrong, not only like hmm. serial killer roles, but women in sex work. Um, any type of addiction stuff, it's really easy to make, just do a shitty job of it. But I yeah. felt like this is the the closest and most realistic portrayal I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, that's the thing is it's so hard to talk about like why it feels so real, but there's not a second where you don't believe this performance and you don't yeah. believe that that is what she has really been through, which is a testament uh, to Charlize Theron's acting ability and to her research and to figuring out what it is like to be a woman in this situation. Like, I th- I, th- I think it's just fucking phenomenal. Like, it's yeah. – you're not going to find a better performance than this. Like, I – it's interesting to watch movies after the fact. Like, this came out, what, 14 years ago now? And, of course, like, got – for her performance, got praise across the board. So sometimes when you see a movie like this, you're like, okay, impress me. Uh, and like, yeah. but that lasted about 12 seconds and then the movie starts and I'm like, oh my, okay. Like I'm in, like, I have no more doubts anymore. <laughs> and that is very rare yeah. for me. Like when you go in with these, uh, expectations that are through the roof for a performance, it's really hard to meet, to meet that. But she does mm-hmm. that and more here. Yeah. And I mean, the first time I watched it, I didn't know who Charlize was really. Right. Um, and now that I know who she is, it's like, I'm, I'm obsessed with her. I want to see everything I ever missed that she did. Right. Um, she's just incredible. Yeah. I think the only other scene I wanted to mention, uh, and it's more of the, you talked about like you laughed more than you thought you would. And it's, there <laughs> is the, the sequence as she's leaving the job interview is one of my favorite moments in this movie where she just, she gets to let out that rage 
um, at yeah. both this person who was treating her like shit and this poor secretary. Uh, fuck you, Leslie, is uh, what I have written down <laughs> as my note. And like, just like, just like that bloodlust we get from this movie, we, from that buildup as she's being treated terribly. Like, there is no reason to be that harsh to someone in a job interview. Like, yes, she is unqualified. Yes, she is not ready for this. But you could just say that. You can say, like, you're yeah. not who we're looking for. We need to end this interview right now. But instead, it was, like, basically, like, two steps away from do you even know how to read? Like, that's that's kind yeah. of the level we're at. So it's so snarky and so cruel and so unnecessary that when she finally snaps and, like, curses everyone out and, like, kicks the trash can as she walks out the door, we do have this only like, yeah, that's right. And, of course, the movie, like, purposefully ruins that later by right after that having her – basically be forced into a sex act by a police officer. Uh, but that, yeah. but that moment right before that, I think is so great and so rousing. And it's a moment of levity that this movie definitely needs because it is so dour and so dark as it should be. This woman is going through hell, uh, but it's nice yeah. to have these little moments of release. Uh, any other favorite scenes that you wanted to bring up? Um, I loved everything with Bruce Dern. Yeah. Um, but we talked about his kind of compassionate, respectful, reaching out of a hand um what i wrote here that he's he helps without belittling which i think is more valuable than what anybody else provides and really difficult and that's that's not something that every person knows how to do i think there is this you know we have this idea uh of like helping someone quote unquote less fortunate than us uh, and then mm-hmm. it comes across as this, like, look at all that I have. Please look, look at the nice thing that I'm doing. And it becomes performative as opposed to yeah. this is another human being on this earth, on this journey, just like me. And they have gotten a shit deal. Maybe I can fucking yeah. give them my sandwich and shut up about it. You know, and, yeah, I lo- exactly. and I love that there's never a moment where he demands anything from her, even though she is using a storage space and not paying him for it. He, yeah he very easily is within his rights to demand from her and he never does like he's just a genuine person who sees someone suffering and wants to assist and that is so wonderful and sweet in a movie like this that is almost devoid of that even from our main characters like we don't we don't get that from selby like she's kind no. of a spoiled princess and then betrays her in the end you know which is another heartbreaking moment like another great acting performance from Charlize Theron where she kind of accepts this and knows yeah. and she figures it out and you can see that hurt behind her eyes again but it doesn't come through in her voice it doesn't come through in a way that anyone else could see it but we see it as the audience yeah I think uh with with Bruce Dern what stood out to me is the line where where she's like hey I could blow you if you want and he's like, oh, no, thanks. You'll just pay me when you can. I mean, you look at that character, you're like, that guy has not been blown in a while. He could probably <laughs> use one. But like, he is definitely like a good guy. And there's right. just so few of them. Yeah. And I think there's two things there. One, that he says, no, you'll pay me when you can. And two, yeah. it would be easy to go the other way for a character and have him be offended by that. Like, how sure, dare yeah. you make that assumption? He doesn't do that either. He just like very gently is like, no, it's okay. You know, and that's yeah. and it, it's it's a very efficient character. He doesn't have a lot of dialogue when he does speak, but everything he says is is really meaningful because he is yeah. the one person who, even though they don't know each other that well, gives a shit about her. Yeah. All right. So uh, obviously, I think we both love this movie. I don't think there's any uh, 
I don't think there's any disagreement there. I think this is, I think obviously Christina Ricci is, is the weak spot in this movie. Um, but I don't think that, I don't think it's a performance that's so weak that it, that it like degrades the movie. I feel like no. the movie still kind of is way above average and pretty, very good to great. Like I think it's, and so much of it, of course, is like focused on Charlize Theron and her performance is pitch perfect and the direction is great and the script is pretty great. I mean, I just think it all really, really works. And I'm so, it feels weird to say you're happy about a movie like this, but I'm happy it got made and I'm happy I finally got to see it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the theme. So we're kind of talking about, you know, it sounds really weird to say it like this, but criminal rehabilitation. And usually when we talk about that, we talk about uh, how bad our prison system is at rehabilitation. But I think in the case of this movie, it's more about her trying to rehabilitate herself because she's found she's found something that she wants to live for and quote unquote do better for. So how did you feel like this tied into the movie and how, as you kind of watched it with this in mind? Uh, Well, I mean, I think it's obvious when she's going for her job interviews, Mm -hmm. uh, she's not qualified for any of them. And the way she's treated is, is what stuck out to me more. So I guess it starts back at the beginning. Like you can see the life that Eileen lived. It was a very specific life. Um, and her, she was not dealt a great hand. So we can assume that she was not well-educated mm-hmm. and probably abused and live, didn't work a real job, quote-unquote right. real job, uh, throughout most of her life. So for someone who wants to get back into this, where do you even start? Right. Like, And she has no idea. She's just going off of what she's seen or what she assumes other people are living. So she she just thinks she's got to get a nice suit. She's got to smile. And then she can she can do whatever she dreams. And it's so heartbreaking because it's it's like her childhood dream. The last kind of like whiff of it is inside of her and it gets snuffed out while she's trying to go straight for her, her love. Um, I think really that's so sad. And and I see it all the time. You know, people who have criminal records to get a pardon costs. When I was doing them, it was like five hundred dollars, right. which is a lot of money uh, for someone who can't work. Yeah. Um, it's insurmountable pardon, when you can't work. Exactly. Yeah. Then what you work at the grocery store um, or you beg groceries or you stock shelves for minimum wage, which is impossible to live off of. Yep. So it's almost hopeless to try to get go straight when you're making so much money doing what you did before. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I just think that just comes across. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the aspect of her, you know, childhood dreams because it's, it's something I didn't necessarily think of while I was watching the movie. But as you began talking, I was like, oh yeah, this is so her thought process about getting a job is almost childish. It's this Mm -hmm. idea of like, this is what people do. Like, I don't have to, like, she doesn't understand that like, oh, you have to go to school for that. You have to put together a resume. And that Mm -hmm. is what comes up, I think, most when I've dealt with, especially people who have dealt with addiction, that they, Mm -hmm. they want to quote unquote, go straight. They want to get a, an acceptable job society wise, but they don't, they don't have, it's not that they don't have the skills. They don't know what the skills are. They don't know what the steps yeah. are because they have been in these situations. Most of these people have been abused or had addicts as as parents. So this is kind of all they know. And like yeah. to just be like, well, just go get a job. Like that doesn't mean anything. That sentence is is in English, 
but doesn't actually mean anything if you've never done that before. You know, I got my first job when I was 15 and I knew how to do this process and I've very well yeah. practiced at it. But these are people who have never done that. And you can sit around and blame them all you want, but that doesn't change the fact that they haven't had the experience or the practice to do any of this. So they are working at this huge detriment, you know, like all yeah. she wants to do is provide for her and Selby. And she thinks like, oh, what do I do to provide for? I get a job. What do people do? Oh, they work in offices. So I'm going to do yeah. that because that's acceptable. And it's, it's actually really like, you know, from the beginning that she's kind of doomed. Like as she's walking into this, we know it's the audience. Yeah. No one's going to come through. And like, even if we didn't know how the story ends, you know, no one's going to be like, well, we'll just give her a job. We'll take a chance on her. It'll be fine. Like, they, you know, that's not going to happen. So she's working at this detriment and you just feel so awful for her as she walks into this building because it's like, it's like walking onto a landmine. Like you just know yeah. that this is going to be bad and she doesn't have and any guidance. And not only is she not going to get a job she's she's going to be humiliated for trying right. so, so and then why she'll, she continue won't continue trying? yeah exactly yeah. and her expects like their expectations are generally so so wrong too i mean um I, I remember talking to clients and and they'd say uh yeah i'm just going to get a job and pay all my bills and so they'd have this sort of um misunderstanding about how much money jobs actually make. So I remember right. saying like, how much money do you think I make? And they're like $5,000 a month. Ha! And I went, Oh, that'd be oh, nice. No, no, honey. No. <laughs> like, if only. So, yeah. So sitting down and saying like, this is how much I pay for my phone. This is how much I pay for rent. This is how much I pay on my student loans. Like kind of just giving a, a breakdown, having their, that realization hit them. And they're like, this, this seems impossible. I'm like, you know what? It is pretty impossible for most people, but it's even harder for you right? because you have to start with nothing and you have to go on people's um, good faith that right. are going to say, you've never worked. I'll give you an opportunity. Like how, how often does that happen when you're in your thirties? Right. It's different when you're a teenager and this is your first job, right. but man, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. It really is because like, I think when you work, when you work with people who have been through this, like you get to know them in a way that a, an employer not only wouldn't ever get to know them, but doesn't care to or doesn't want mm -hmm. to. So we can understand like wanting to help them and thinking that they would be trustworthy. But from the perspective of the employer, they're not willing to take that chance, especially if they're older than, than 18. Like if someone makes a bunch yeah. of mistakes, you know, when they're a minor and then all the records get sealed, fine. But like once you're once you're over 18 and you start making mistakes, like we we talk a good game as far as like, I mean, we call some of our prisons like departments of, of rehabilitation, but that is not what they are. Like, I mean, I think if anyone's interested in how the prison system works, they should go watch that documentary, The 13th, and how it just it feeds it's like a factory more than it is trying to create yeah. trying to create people who are going to give back to society it just becomes this endless feedback loop and so yes there are people <clears throat> excuse me yes there are people who do get rehabilitated and who do end up getting jobs but i think unfortunately they are few and far between because of that detriment that you're working at absolutely and then the ones who do get out you know i had a, a girl talk to me and she said you know, she's making minimum wage and she's just working at a kind of a menial job. And she was like, this is what I worked for. And she's unhappy right. with the life. And, and what can I say? Like, 
yeah, that is that is what it is. Yeah. That is what living a straight life is. Yeah, it sucks. I mean, it's yeah, especially <laughs> because like, yeah, I mean, you could say living a straight life sucks, but it it sucks more for someone who has had to, quote unquote, go straight because someone like me yeah. who has never had those life experiences is much easier for me to move up and much easier for me to get trusted and get promotions and all that. Yeah. Like people who have been through this have to work harder than I do to get a job than I do to get a promotion. So that's, I mean, you know, like just to get a minimum wage job, which is something that a lot of us like look down upon and frown upon. And we're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I would, I would never do that. I would never sully myself with a, with a, with a job that's minimum wage. And there's some people who would kill for that job because like they're not allowed to have it. Absolutely. I, I work minimum wage today and I'm just thankful for it. I mean, these days finding a job is tough. I can't imagine trying to find a job when I had no experience and this kind of history. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so on that really happy note, uh, we will move to, uh, the movie that we're pairing this with, which is like, if, if this did not share a director, this would be the strangest pairing in the history of pop culture case studies. So we are paying monster with, of course, Wonder Woman, uh, cause they're both heroes. No, that's not, that's not why. Uh, we are pairing, of course, because they have the same director, Patty Jenkins, finally getting another shot to make a movie. So, um, what are your expectations for Wonder Woman? Are you said you're not big into the kind of the superhero thing? So are you going to see this? Are you looking forward to seeing it? Um, I'm going to see this mostly to quote unquote vote with my dollar. Um, I just want to give money to, to something that's woman led, woman created, Mm -hmm. whatever. I personally don't really care about Wonder Woman. Um, I don't care about any superhero movies and, uh, but I'll go see this one just to support it. Yeah, there's actually uh, one of our previous guests uh, on the show, Miranda Sajak, kind of talked about this offline that, you know, she wants, she's not going to go see it, but she's going to buy a ticket. (laughs) <laughs> she's like right. you know so oh, if that's any great i should do that yeah so she like put out something on twitter like hey if you're a mother and daughter who wants to see the movie for free let me know i'll buy the tickets i'll buy the tickets for you because i have no interest in superhero movies but but i do want to support this because i think it's important um for me like i mean obviously i fucking see everything so i can't exactly come here like well i'm not gonna see that because i'm above yeah i like i watch fucking everything uh because that way i can fucking complain about it because that's fun to me (laughs) um but so i'm interested in seeing this movie uh because i i still have hope uh that that dc will come out with a above average movie like i i don't think uh the other dc movies have been quite as bad as some have made them out to be but they're not great uh so it'd be nice to see them uh make a good movie and it'd be nice to see a female led like forget comic book a female led gigantic budget movie do really well like you said voting with your dollar be nice to see like i'm sure i haven't looked but i'm sure the budget is well over a hundred million dollars uh so it'd be nice to see it do really well and be a success and maybe other big companies kind of take a cue from that and trust women-led movies as far as acting and women-led movies as far as directing i think that would be really cool so i'm excited on that level absolutely yeah i think i care more about um female directed films, I guess, at least in this case, I don't, you know, I'm going to admit this. I'm going to get so much hate on Twitter. I don't even know the difference really between Marvel and DC. Like I could not name which (laughs) ones do which thing. You're probably (laughs) better off. Don't worry. And you probably will get some hate on Twitter because it's Twitter. Uh, But fuck them. Who cares? (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so we're both super excited, uh, to see this movie, obviously. Um, so, uh, one more time, uh, I actually really want to kind of pump up your work because, I mean, I've said this before to you. Uh, I've said it on Twitter. I've said it on here. You are one of my favorite writers, not only at audiences everywhere, but just in general. I always look forward oh, you. to your pieces. Uh, and they give me, like, I mean, I watched, I watched three movies for, uh, one of your pieces, which is still one of your best, the Roman Polanski. Uh, piece that you did. Um, so I would definitely recommend people. I mean, I'd like you to read my work too, cause I'm selfish. Uh, but, uh, I would, I would read, I would read Becky's work first. I think she's, she's a very gifted writer and someone who should get more opportunities. So why don't you let people know where to find you online and find your work? Uh, you can read my stuff at audience, audienceseverywhere.net and you can find me on Twitter at Bex Bezos. Just a small town girl. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. So uh, thanks to Becky Belzeal for being here for that episode. You can find her work and my work at audienceseverywhere.com. Lots of great movie articles for you to read there. So um, the next time you hear me, we will be doing an episode on Wonder Woman. So we will be taking a close look at that. And Britt and I will be talking about since we talked about Monster here, which is about a serial killer, we're going to be taking a look at Michael Mann's Manhunter in, in Brit's film education. Uh, and if you'd like to help out the show, there's a bunch of ways you can do it. Uh, there's the usual. You can just keep listening and tell your friends about this great podcast that you heard, Pop Culture Case Study, and you can tell them to check it out. You can go to followingfilms.com and check out other great movie podcasts like The Last New Wave and War Machine vs. Warhorse. Or you can go to patreon.com slash pop culture case study and there you can donate on a per episode basis and you can get some really cool rewards for supporting an independent podcast and last of all you can follow me on twitter at pc case study all right so until next time i will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch Yeah, I maybe I just am giving him the benefit of the doubt, but to me it just seems like he's a stupid person. <laughs>